Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with Michael Mann. He's a distinguished professor of atmospheric science at Penn State University. And he does so many things in the realm of climate, so many things that are, how do I say, leadership and visionary. I was very excited to see his new book. It's called The New Climate War. And I guess coming from the world of PhDs and coming from, from the press, seeing all the obstacles, seeing all the crazy, which you might call fake news, I found somebody that made sense and put a lot of things together. So I want to congratulate you on this, on this fine book and welcome you onto the podcast. Thanks so much, Rob. It's uh, great to be here with you. Uh, extraordinary. Uh, some of the things you see, you know, my colleague and friend Adair Turner works on, what do we do with renewables? On the demand side, what has to be changed? How do we convince people? How do we use our institutions, government, media, uh, scientists to facilitate this? It feels like the clock is ticking, but you started. You, you told so much about what you might call disinformation and resistance at the outset, almost uh, how do you say using up the clock. It reminded me of the old basketball thing called the four cornered offense, oh, yeah, where I they just that. pass the ball around and nobody would shoot, and you try to Dean win Smith, the game North four Carolina. to nothing. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, right. Absolutely. That's exactly right. <laughs> so, anyway, let's 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 kick off here. With, what, what inspired you to write this book? Well, I'll tell you, it's sort of what you're alluding to here. Um, we are so close now, we can sort of feel it, uh, so close to finally seeing the, the action that so many have worked so hard for, for, for decades, uh, action on climate. And yet there are these obstacles um, that are being thrown in our path. And, and they're not the old obstacles, they're new obstacles, um, because it's impossible to deny that climate change is happening now. People can see it with their own two eyes. So the forces of inaction, whom I call the inactivists in the book, realize that that, that old tactic of just attacking the science, attacking the scientists, trying to convince the public and, and policymakers that there isn't a problem, that's just not going to cut it anymore mm -hmm. uh, because people can see that there's a problem. That doesn't mean they've given up. Um, far from it. Uh, but what they have done is to engage in an array of uh, ever more insidious tactics that have the same sort of um, intent uh, to prevent us from moving on, from, to prevent us from stopping the burning of fossil fuels, from which you know the fossil fuel industry has pr profited so greatly for, for decades. They want us to remain addicted to fossil fuels. And they're willing to use any means possible to, um, you know, to ensure that. And so what that means today is blocking policy efforts to um, incentivize renewable energy, uh, blocking efforts to put a price on carbon, uh, discrediting renewable energy, attacking it, uh, trying to convince 
environmentalists that renewable energy is as bad for the environment as fossil fuel energy, which is, you know, nothing could be farther from the truth, <laughs> dividing uh, the, the community. So there is denial, but denial is largely given way to division dividing climate advocates, getting them fighting with each other um, uh, about uh, strategy, uh, getting them fighting with each other about individual lifestyle choices, uh, getting us to finger point at each other and carbon shame each other. Why are you eating meat? Why aren't you a vegan? Why do you still fly? It's a great way to create infighting within the climate advocacy community, sort of a divide and conquer strategy. Mm-hmm. But uh, in addition to division, it also accomplishes another tactic, deflection. And you'll notice an alliteration, these, these words that start with D, um, deflecting attention away from the needed systemic changes. Again, subsidies for renewables, pricing carbon, blocking new fossil fuel infrastructure, all these things that we can't do ourselves. We need our politicians to do for us. Um, They don't want that to happen because it's going to hurt their bottom line. It's going to hurt their profits. So instead, they want to make it about our individual behavior, about, uh, once again, our individual choices, our diet, our our travel, anything but the fossil fuel infrastructure upon uh, which we're currently forced to depend. Then there is a doom and despair mongering. Um, If they can convince us that it's too late to do anything about the problem, It robs us of agency, and it potentially leads us down that same path of inaction, of disengagement, as outright denial. And so these are just some of the insidious tactics that the the forces of inaction, the inactivists, are now using to prevent us from moving on. And those are the obstacles in our path, and we need to learn how to fight back and to clear them away, um, because they are the only thing now that stand in our way. I know the proponents of what you describe in the book are the what you might call deflectors, defenders of the fossil fuel industry. But you also had a little sliver in there about the non-trusting of governments, therefore the capture. And so a carbon price will exacerbate inequality, run into resistance from social unsustainability because of that inequality. And therefore, some people on the left haven't backed carbon pricing when it seems like we need all the tools to be brought to the table to meet this timetable. What's going on there? You know, absolutely. And it's really a relatively new development. Look, the, uh, the forces of inaction long ago marshaled the political right uh, for their cause. Um, they've, got, they've got conservatives um, who oppose regulation who are dismissive of environmental concerns. They've long had them on their side. What is um, so, again, insidious um, and pernicious is their effort now to actually marshal some on the political left, those who would otherwise be on the front lines advocating for action. If they can convince them, for example, that the solutions that are being proposed um, are problematic, that renewable energy is going to hurt the environment as a tiny footprint compared to fossil fuels, um, or that carbon pricing, one of the primary mechanisms for reducing demand for fossil fuels and leveling the playing field so renewable energy can compete. They can convince us that um, it's inconsistent with uh, issues of cultural and and racial uh, justice. Um, For example, the idea that a carbon price is intrinsically regressive, um, that it will put undue burden on those with the least income, those with the least resources. 
That has not been true where it has been successfully implemented in Canada, in Australia, be, before the uh, conservative government got rid of it, where it was working very well. And lower income uh, earners were actually gaining from carbon pricing because the revenue was being returned to the people. The revenue that was raised through carbon pricing was being returned to the people on a progressive basis. More of it went to, again, to, to low income earners. And so it all depends on how it's structured. But the inactivists have been very effective in convincing some progressives that carbon pricing is somehow going to be unjust, that's going to put undue burden, again, on frontline communities, um, or that, hey, it's buying into capitalism. And, and if you're buying into capitalism, you're, buy, you know, you're, 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 you're in bed with the enemy because we have to get away from this whole capitalist system. So the idea that market mechanisms like carbon pricing um, you know, is buying into neoliberal economics and should be opposed for that reason. Look, there's, there's a, a worthy conversation to be had about whether our current global economy is in the long term fundamentally compatible with uh, environmental sustainability. And there's some deep questions that we have to ask about you know, an extractive market-based economy. Can we continue um, on this course in, in a sustainable way? But the climate crisis, we've got to act now. We've got 10 years to bring our carbon emissions down by a factor of two. So to those who want to remake the global economy and defeat uh, you know, uh, capitalism and, and have sort of a larger um, political envision, a larger political agenda, Let's have that conversation. Um, but in the meantime, we've got to work within the system that exists to solve this problem. Yeah, I, I often in these podcasts uh, refer to what I call the tale of two failed romances. The first romance is unbridled faith in the unfettered free market and in the pervasive what they call externalities and public goods. It will fail. And maybe for other reasons, like non-enforcement of antitrust or uh, feedback that comes from money politics, all of that. But the other failed romance, and this is one that's troubling now, and that's why I teased you a little bit from the left, or, or about the left, I should say, is that the other failed romance is the belief that government can do it and will do it. And that's where that money politics and that's where the competency and the training and the quality of people that choose to work in the public sector is, is why do I say, given the disincentives of poor pensions and low pay, etc., relative to other opportunities. So you have all kinds of reasons to be hesitant, skeptical of any kind of romantic social theory now. But we still got to get on our horse and ride to this finish line. So it's 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 quite a dilemma. Yeah, we've got to sort of go with the the horse we arrived on for the time being, um, and we might want to trade in that horse for a for a different one later on. But I think that's exactly right. And you know, the problem isn't so much uh, market economics itself. It's market economics where the the rules have been stacked in favor of big corporations um, and 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 big money, dark money, uh, and the fact that polit politicians can be bought. And, and, and once they're bought, uh, they're doing the bidding of powerful special interests rather than the people they're supposed to be representing. All of those problems are very real. Um, and, and they are part of the politics, the prevailing political atmosphere. And we can't solve climate change or any other problem without engaging in the political battle, um, the battle to, to um, 
you know, to attain, to marshal the political will to act on the, the um, defining crises of our time. You know, it's um, Bill Gates has a book out right now on climate uh, change as well. He advocates for a very sort of technocratic path. Um, and he was asked in a recent interview if, you know, what, um, you know, what's the solution to the, the, the politics of climate uh, change, you know, climate change denial and inactivism. And he said, well, I don't know the solution to the politics. Well, if you don't have a solution to the politics, you don't have a solution because right now it isn't um, a, a, a matter of um, technology. We've got the technology that we need to solve this problem. We've been existing renewable energy technology. What we're lacking right now is the political will. And, and, and that's the battle that we you know, see before us here in Earth Week, where you know, there's going to be a monumental summit um, in Washington, D.C. Uh, to you know, uh, see where we stand and what we have to do in the remaining months of this year so that by the time we get to COP26, um, the next major international climate conference later this year in November in Glasgow, we'll sort of have all of our ducks in a row and um, the, the main actors will be ready to ratchet up their commitments and we can start to see ourselves getting on the path that we need to be on to avert catastrophic warming. Hmm. You know, I remember years ago, my friend, uh, I'm proud to say my friend, uh, Naomi Klein, wrote a book called This Changes Everything. And she was uh, envisioning what I'll call the merchants of doubt, to use Naomi Oreskes in the Sure. Mixing the two kind Naomi's. of things that you, uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> the tale of two Naomi's. <laughs> uh, but the uh, but the idea that she brought up was, it's not that the climate science is to be resisted or not. It's that if you say the private sector needs governance, and climate is proof of that, people will then try to bring governments governments more heavily into interfering in all kinds of marketplaces. So let's fight it here at the starting gate. Years later, I was uh, in a meeting with some climate-related people in Grover Nordquist, and somebody in the group asked him very pointedly, well, if you don't, with climate pricing and what have you, make things work, we're going to get to a place where you will see authoritarian governance and you guys, by stalling, right. will have brought it about. Right. So, the, so right. they face dilemmas on the right that when they favor individual freedom, minimal government, of having a, a calamity based on that right. system can, can create the kind of transformation that Naomi sensed that they were going to resist. No, that, that's right. And, and I, I uh, know both Naomi's and uh, Naomi Oreskes is a close friend and, and colleague. And, uh, and this is a point that she often makes. If you hate big government, then climate change is your worst nightmare. Because, you know, when it comes to the adaptations that would be necessary to deal with unmitigated climate change impacts, we're, we're going to need so much more governmental uh, intervention than, than we've seen before. And so it is an interesting argument, uh, one that I think does have the potential to bring some conservatives to the table. Grover Norquist, uh, I've met with him in the past as well. Um, he's a thoughtful person, smart guy, um, you know, uh, but he has strong ideological principles when it comes to taxation. And, you know, it, it, it was interesting to see him start to bend a little bit, um, talking about how he could, in fact, see himself 
in, in support of carbon pricing if, say, it was offset, right, if it was revenue neutral. So you weren't increasing overall taxation. You, you levy a, a tax on carbon, but you lower other taxes, income taxes, what have you, to try to offset that. You know, that that's a, that's a worthy position. It's not necessarily one I, I agree with. You know, I would argue that, um, you know, that uh, you, you um, there is a role um, for increasing government revenue to, to deal with this crisis overall. Uh, but let, let's have that debate. That's a worthy debate That's to right. be had. What yeah, is source, a worthy debate? Sources and uses and the source creates a deterrent to burning carbon. The uses, social sustainability, energy infrastructure, Green New Deal. James Boyce has explored that quite a bit uh, in his writing, some of which he's done for INET. And uh, I did a podcast with him where he yeah. Really delved into that, uh, yeah. using the yellow vests as a warning sign from France right. that we do have to take into account the social sustainability side of this as well. Absolutely. And I talk about the yellow vest protest a little bit in my book as well, uh, because there's a lot going on there. Um, some of the same uh, sort of malevolent actors um, who have reared their, he- uh, you know, their, their head in the um, sort of climate inaction movement in, in recent years um, Russia, for example, has meddled in the politics of other countries. The United States, of course, now famously um, in uh, the previous presidential election and the most recent presidential election. But in Canada and even in France, um, they have uh, used sort of um, cyber weaponry to try to sabotage policy efforts that they don't like. And they don't want to see action on climate. Um, that's, you know, uh, uh, Putin has made it very clear this is their greatest asset right now are the fossil fuels still buried beneath Russian soil. And and uh, Russia um, has worked hard to sabotage global action on climate. Uh, we have to recognize that, yeah, we there are villains um, when it comes to the fossil fuel industry and the, and the front groups that they fund. Um, but there are also state actors who have been playing a, a malevolent role. Um, Saudi Arabia, Russia, even Australia um, in recent years under Scott Morrison. Um, and that, that's the challenge, right? Um, going into this next climate uh, conference, this next uh, global agreement to get some of these intransigent actors on board. Uh, what I'll tell you is it sure helps to have leadership once again in the United States, to have a president who's leading on this issue. It puts a lot more pressure on other intransigent actors like Scott Morrison in Australia, who's feeling the pressure of an American president now who's leading on climate. Yeah, I I know a number of people that were in the running for uh, being the next head of the OECD. And when the Australian gentleman was named, they were very upset on the grounds that that resource-based country would be resistant to the climate, I spoke out climate against, change. Against, yeah, Matthias Corman. Uh, I, I right, spoke right. out quite uh, vehemently, um, you know, uh, about uh, what an adverse impact that would have on uh, mm-hmm. the global politics of climate action, and it's something now we're going to have to to contend with. Mm-hmm. There's a uh, famous book. It's called "The Life of Poetry" by a woman named Muriel Rukeyser. And the first third of the book is, is called The Resistances. And the first chapter is called The Fear of Poetry. 
And in it, she describes how when things are unfamiliar, and she was on a ship that evacuated Europe during Nazi attacks to come to the United States, and she tried to cheer people up by reading her poetry, and she said they, they couldn't let it in. And so, and she was talking about the resistances in poetry being a way to open your right. mind, your imagination, are formidable at times of fear and change. Yeah. The philosopher Stephen Toulmin wrote a book called Cosmopolis, and it was really a study from the Protestant Reformation, 30 Years' War, to the Cartesian Enlightenment, its fault lines. And, after, and as Ronald Reagan took power, in the, he was talking about how the 1960s were a new vision and a push forward, but there was a reaction, right. a, a counter-revolution, a resistance. And, and his, his theme of the book, in many ways, was right when you can see that your system's not working, that your ideology's not working, that your habits are not working. Is exactly when you become afraid, afraid and lurch back to the familiar. And, right. and these merchants of doubts, the kind of people you're talking about in your book, you have many illustrations of how oh, they yeah. reach to those places. And it's, I, I'm, I'm reminded, I was talking about abstract philosophical work, but I, I've read a number of things by Erwin uh, Laszlo. And he had a, a book out last year about making a better world, a very short little pamphlet. I think he's written three books this year. But he's a systems complex guy. But he makes a little statement that I wanted to quote to you. Today's crisis has not been faded. Its outcome is not predetermined. It is sensitive to our perceptions, values, and aspirations, and the behaviors inspired by them. So what I'm getting at is this psychological terrain, which you keep excavating. It's not about a mystery that the scientists go into the laboratory and have to figure out how to do this. It's about changing our ideas, our habits, our modes of collective organization. Right. And the resistances are formidable, just like Muriel Rukeyser experienced on that ocean liner. Well, sure. And we saw that in the reaction to the Obama presidency. That's what the Trumpism mm -hmm. essentially was. And it came to, you know, a, a full boil uh, with the insurrection in, in, in January, January against 6, our yeah. capital, which was really... Um, about the grievance of those who feel left behind um, as, you know, our society becomes more diverse, um, mm -hmm. as, uh, you know, we become uh, hopefully um, more enlightened about issues of um, justice um, and racial equality. And mm -hmm. uh, th this is a threat um, to, 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 you know, a certain segment of the population, and they've been weaponized. What's so pernicious, to use that word again, yes. is how they have been weaponized by the forces of inaction. They are basically the ground troops that have been used to advocate uh, an agenda of deregulation, of environmental deregulation, mm -hmm. of inaction on climate, an agenda from which these individuals don't actually benefit, but they've been fooled into thinking that they do. And that's part of the tragedy of what we've seen unfold over the last decade in this country. Yeah. And then on the other side of the ledger are people who are trying to reach to what you might call philosophical precedents. Black Elk Speaks, made a lot of Native American lore, uh, some Eastern philosophy to try to see 
things from a different vantage point. Are there particular landmark works that have inspired you over time? Oh, certainly there are. Um, you know, the writings of, of Carl Sagan have uh, been uh, very influential for me. He was a scientist, but he was a science communicator and really a philosopher um, by, by some measure. Um, and, you know, uh, wrote profoundly uh, about, um, you know, environmental issues, but also just about sort of the struggles um, that we face when it comes to the role of rationality and science um, and, and fact-based discourse. And some of his most feared prophecies have, have come to fruition, in a sense, um, over the last uh, decade. Uh, he sort of um, presaged with, with, um, with a foreboding um, you know, back in uh, the demon haunted world back in the mid 1990s, uh, I think it was published in 1995. He, he foreboded a future where people would become disconnected from the tools of uh, rational discourse and unable to, you know, litigate for themselves what's wrong and what's right and how dangerous that would be um, at a time when we have great technology that can be leveraged for, for good or for bad. Um, he was, of course, very worried about issues like nuclear proliferation um, at the time, but he also foresaw you know, the, the, the threat um, of global environmental crises um, where you, know, you would have a citizenry that uh, come, does, is uh, ill-equipped to uh, again to to to, to litigate um, you know these matters and falls prey to the victims. He was very concerned about us falling prey to pseudoscience, fortune telling, uh, faith healing, etc. What I think he didn't quite realize was that actually anti-science, ideologically motivated anti-science, directed anti-science would be a far greater threat than mere pseudoscience. Mm -hmm. um, but it is where yeah. we are, um, yeah. realizing some of his worst, uh, worst fears. Um, I also do like, you know, the genre of cli-fi, of science fiction, climate-themed uh, science fiction. I did an event uh, not too long ago with Kim Stanley Robinson. Uh, who's a powerful, the shamans. <laughs> yeah, powerful I've met him a few times, yeah. yeah amazing, amazing guy. Um, really interesting approach to, uh, you know, to creating narratives that are fictional narratives, but they they have the ring of truth to them. And in in some ways, his latest book, um, the 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 uh, the the Ministry for the Future, while it's a fictional narrative, is is it tells a very similar story from 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 the the new climate war. Um, and we need we need fictional narratives and storytelling to help communicate, um, you know, the gravity of this threat to the public. And I think it's great that people with different backgrounds and tools and approaches are all, again, bringing them to the table to, to, to see if we can um, uh, marshal them in the greatest challenge that we face, the greatest fight that we fa face, the, the, the fight to um, address climate change before it's too late. Yeah, I've had the good fortune of knowing the television commentator, uh, Bill Moyers, whose work with Joseph Campbell explored the nature of myths. And I remember there was one called The Hero's Journey where Campbell said, I am told on a radio show that a myth is a lie. And then he goes into, well, the myth is a metaphor. It's not a lie. But this, this tension 
And when right? you brought it up, what I thought was fascinating, as you just described, is how anti-science grew. Because science was to wean you off of superstition, some of the things that Sagan feared. But then anti-science was to say, you've embraced a false security, and the people who provide that false security have deceived you on behalf of a narrow elite. Right. The fight then is not a different science. The fight is using the anger at those people for deceiving you with what you thought was comforting. And they go to a different mythology to regain their comfort. And it's, it's right. just really, it's emotional fabric that's very torn up. Right. And, and it makes it very hard to navigate in an urgent time like this. And I thought this, I thought that you might call the strands of all of that was so evident in your book. Like it was well, like you were seeing an extra dimension other than, and, and, and interpreting, you were seeing the pattern of that dimension. And I thought that was really extraordinary. Really. Well, well thanks. I mean, I think, you know, I found myself on the front lines of this battle, um, a sort of unusual combatant um, in a political battle as trained as a scientist. But the science that I did led to the publication of the, the now well-known hockey stick curve back in the late right. 1990s. Right. And it took on sort of iconic significance in the climate change debate. And I quickly found myself in a completely different arena, not in the world yeah. of science, yes. simply in the world of science, but thrust into sort of the public um, uh, battle over uh, climate change and what to do about it. And um, I again, I've been, you know, for more than two decades now on the front lines of that battle. And as I say in the book, um, I've come to recognize the enemy quite well. I, I know its tactics. I've, I've seen its yes. evolving yes. Um, tactics uh, in, in the warfare that it has been, you know, uh, advancing against uh, climate action. And so I, I hope that there's some wisdom that I've been able to derive from having been on the front lines of that war. Uh, that I'm able to share with readers. Well, I think it's that, what you now call fusion of art and science. Uh, I'm smiling because I'm a old Detroit guy that played hockey and I see your book, The Hockey Stick and Climate yeah, Wars right. over your right shoulder. <laughs> but, uh, that's right. But, the, uh, but, it, but it's really extraordinary that, uh, I, I guess science is somewhat tribal and anthropological. And when they're under pressure, it's a normal human thing to, what you might call, circle the wagons and defend yourself. But when those boundaries become less supple at a time when we have to evolve, science can harm itself by staying in that circle the wagons kind of posture. And I, I, really, right. I, I want to applaud you seeing beyond that and in the role of leadership i have many young scholars we have over fifteen thousand young scholars at inet and i love to which am i call excavate in these kind of conversations the kind of leadership that your example creates for them and i think it's very important that's very, that's very kind of you um you know again it's um it's not what i signed up for to be in this <laughs> battle but um but i feel privileged to have you know, found myself in a position to influence the, you know, the larger societal conversation over what is arguably the, the greatest challenge that we face. Um, so, you know, it's the last yes. thing I envisioned doing when I decided to double major in applied math and, and physics as an undergraduate and go off to, 
to graduate school to study theoretical physics. But my journey ultimately took me in a completely different direction from the one I intended. And despite that, um, you know, I if I had the opportunity to do it over again, I would I would make the same choices because even though it's not what I really wanted to do, what I signed up for, um, you know, I, I went into science because I love doing science. I love solving problems. Um, but, you know, I have an opportunity to do something to contribute to something even more important. And I've mm-hmm. embraced that. Now, I remember a gentleman I once listened to speak at Berkeley. His last name was Capra, the Tao of Physics and oh, yes. Systems Thinking, the Preach Web off. of Life. Fritjof uh, Capra. Yeah. 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 No relation yeah. to Frank, as far as I understand. <laughs> no. That's right. Different uh, different sorcerers. But uh, but but I understood uh, he was quite influential in the opening of, how do I say, the bridges between physics and other dimensions uh, in his yeah. career. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, the... Uh, the other person I recalled, I believe, was Carl Sagan's wife. And I thought I remembered, uh, I read your book a few weeks back, but she, a woman, uh, Lynn, I think, Lynn, is it? Yeah. Mar- Mar- he, had, he had several uh, wives at different points in oh, his life. Okay. Um, his first wife was Lynn Margulis, who was indeed was, yeah. Um, yeah. a, uh, a brilliant uh, scientist in her own right, um, mm-hmm. you know, made some of the most important advances in uh, biology and ecology of the last half century. Uh, the the, the, the um, concept of endosymbiosis, um, how, you know, um, the origin of uh, chloroplasts in, in plant cells or the mitochondrion, the source of energy um, in, um, in, in animal uh, cells um, provides, uh, it allows us to metabolize oxygen, came about uh, through the symbiosis of, of two different organisms. Um, and that was long considered sort of heretical. Uh, it's now accepted as fact. Um, and so she she was pushing at the boundaries of science. It's sort of fascinating to, to look at the careers of the two of them and sort of this brief but important period during which they were partners. I sometimes imagine what the dinner conversations must have been like um, uh, in, in that household. Um, but, uh, but yeah, um, and some of our notion, uh, the theory of Gaia, the idea that the earth in some ways behaves like an organism in terms of uh, uh, sort of uh, homeostatic um, processes that maintain Earth within a, a range of parameters that allows for life, that is um, conducive to life. That was um, her, uh, really it was a, a theory uh, jointly put forward by uh, her and the, the great uh, biologist James Lovelock. Um, and so Lovelock and Margulis, um, very influential principle in ecology. So yeah, and Carl Sagan was a great scientist too. He's largely remembered as a science communicator, but as an earth scientist, um, when you're trained in the science, uh, you, you, you come to understand what fundamental contributions he actually made to climate science decades ago. Um, for example, uh, the conundrum that Earth w- uh, had a habitable temperature at a time when the sun was dim enough that it should have been a frozen planet. And Sagan uh, reasoned that there must have been a stronger greenhouse effect. And, and that now is sort of uh, canonical 
as well. It's part of our, our the corpus of our scientific understanding. So yeah, these people were scientists, but they were also f- philosophers, and, and Sagan interacted quite a bit with, with philosophers and people, uh, political scientists, sociologists. Um, he was a true sort of Renaissance individual um, in a in a way, you know, it's sort of um, uh, it, 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 it's a breed, an academic breed that's gone extinct to some extent. The sort of truly transdisciplinary approach that that he um, took to science and to science communication. Yeah, I think uh, I remember I went to MIT as an undergraduate. I minored in creative writing, and the advisor said, "You've got four semesters to do. Pick a couple people." Yeah. And I, surprisingly, I guess in retrospect, but I feel fortunate, was with their guidance, the two I picked were Martin Luther King Jr. and Albert Einstein. Interesting. And it was more of Einstein's philosophical and humanistic writing. Right. And obviously King, who was a minister, became a theologian with a graduate degree at Boston University. And sort of seeing them each from their base reaching a different direction, not to each other, but it just, it, it, how do you say, created a feeling of lateral mobility in me. Well, it it was, they were both in their own ways, brilliant communicators. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's Mm -hmm. a commonality coming from Mm -hmm. completely different directions. But, uh, and that's something that you find in the climate space too. People who come from very different directions, but sort of meet in in the middle when it comes to, you know, the common effort to communicate the science and its implications to the public. The, uh, I think there's a reference in, in an affirmation of your book, but I, I remember toward the end you were talking about what I will call the eyes of a child, the fresh eyes of Greta Thunberg and the right. youth movement. How is that contributing to the impetus in a, in a constructive way? Well, it's been transformational as far as I'm concerned, um, mm-hmm. because for too long, we allowed uh, climate change to be framed in very cerebral terms, purely cerebral terms, um, the, the mind, but not so much the heart, um, science, uh, economics, policy and politics. And what uh, Greta and the other, you know, hundreds of thousands of youth climate advocates around the world have done is to recenter this issue um, as a matter of ethics, um, intergenerational ethics, but also distributive uh, ethics. Um, you know, when it comes to sort of the, 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 the industrial world versus the developing world, um, the, the, the ethics of uh, the you know the, the ethical conundrum that those who had the least role in creating this problem are the ones who will suffer the greatest consequences if we fail to act. And so I think that Greta and the others have really um, you know accomplished something fundamentally important uh, to recenter this as an issue of, of ethics, of an ethical obligation to act before it's too late. And I, you know, argue in the book that that is really a game changer and that we need to support them in their efforts um, and provide, uh, you know, and defend them in their efforts because they are under attack. Um, Greta has the, you know, eye of Sauron 
fixed um, uh, on her and the other youth climate advocates uh, because of uh, you know the the, the 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 threat that they represent to the status quo to the fossil fuel industry um, and uh, they the fossil fuel sort of disinformation machine has um, you know has set its sights on them has has worked hard to discredit uh, Greta Thunberg and the other youth climate uh, advocates. Um, They've helped open a door, but the rest of us have to walk through. We can't put it entirely upon them to solve this problem. We now have to step in. Those of us who are in a position um, to have a direct influence on policy uh, and politics um, have to step in and, and do our part. And so, yes, they have they've provided a foot in the door, but the rest of us now have to walk through um, I want to uh, share with you a little episode in my own life. Uh, I mentioned to you that uh, Naomi Klein and her husband, Avi Lewis, are friends of our family. I have a daughter, I have two daughters, nine and 11, young, and, and one that's much older. But the two younger daughters at the time when they were, I believe, six and nine, were inspired through Naomi and from her alerting us to who Greta Thunberg was to go to the the, cli the climate strike from school. And I went with my daughters and we marched and we came home and probably seven weeks later, I was in the middle of doing some work with uh, the team around Pope Francis, which involved climate and social sustainability issues among other right. things. And I had a subset of my board come over to the house for dinner. And one of, them, one of my daughters called Pizza Man because he's taught them how to make pizzas from scratch. Well, Pizza Man and a couple of the others started speaking ominously about climate change. She's seen the strike. She knows this, saw Greta Speaks, yeah. inspired by Naomi. But she became very quiet on that day at that dinner. She was sitting at the table. She knew these people. And the next day she went to school, was very quiet when I drove her to school, which is uncharacteristic. And after her second period, I got uh, from, I got a picture of a poem that she wrote. And I'll read it to you. It's called, What is Everything? by Sarah. What is everything? Is it all essence? Or is it all answers? Is there more? Why am I all covered up, never seen past, present, or future? Is it all an illusion? Why is it all collapsing, destroyed? All those lives not knowing, will we ever know? And I was kind of saddened yeah. to see that come across my radar. I mean, she's quite artistic and poetic and it's almost an extended haiku uh yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. but it was such an energy yeah. of dread and at some level yeah what caught fire in my mind is greta's awakening and reaching her is a contribution but we as the adults have to take the lead on this thing now because she it's sat and listened right. to my board members and me talk about this and had intensified dread it was as well, if the problem, the, the yeah. call to action was there, and then the elders were fearful, not right. seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. 
No, that's right. And it, it's, it's why, you know, again, the, the major message of the book of the new climate war is um, the importance of both urgency and agency, you know, awareness that we have a challenge nice. on our part, but we can do something about it. And, and too many of our children have fallen into despair, um, you know, and, 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 and sort of, I, th- I think we see that uh, there in that poem, um, out of this sense of helplessness, um, that there's nothing we can do. And so we have to make it clear that there is something we can do. We have to provide that agency. Um, this is, uh, again, a good week um, from that standpoint, because we're seeing a, a degree of mobilization that we haven't seen in a long time. Um, we're, we're late to the fight, you know, um, it, it's, it's, it's late and we've gone far, much farther down this path than we sh- should have ever allowed us to go, but it's not too late. And, and that's an important message here. Um, and, and that's one that I hope will sort of catch fire this week, this earth week, um, yes. an awareness that, yeah, we're late to, you know, to the game, but we're not too late. And and let's do it. This is our time. I loved in the end of your book, you talked about the role of hope. That at some level, despondency and resignation is, how do I say, the ally of our enemy. That's right. Whether it's extermination or the fossil fuel industry or... People on the left that don't want a new carbon price. So you can pick your own enemy. But resignation rather than hope feeds on itself. It's an amplifying feedback because the more resigned, the more inaction, the more difficult it is to meet the timetable, the more resigned, etc. And that despondency. And like a lot of feedbacks, it can act in both directions. Hope also then feeds on itself. Um, And we see that, um, you know, that we're able to accomplish something, that we make a difference in our lives and we see it has a positive impact. And that leads us down this path of engagement where we realize, oh, well, you know, I, I can do this too. And why don't I do this? And, and this is well understood actually in all, all fields, um, you know, uh, of, uh, of all fields, it turns out in marketing. In the world of marketing, this has long been understood, this idea of uh, the path of engagement. You get people to do little things and it potentially leads them to larger and larger stepping stones um, that ultimately can really result in the the, the sorts of actions that, that we need to see collectively. So, yeah, I, I do I do think that that's really critical. It is the the note that I end on in the book, and it's sort of fortuitous because the book went to press in August. So, I, you know, I, I didn't know with confidence where we would be when the book came out this this last January after the election, but. I, I had a sense at that time of where we were headed, um, and and I and I, you know, and 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 I sort of um, envisioned a future where you know there was restored leadership um, in 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 the presidency of the United States, and and that's where we are now. We've got a real opportunity. Uh, what we can't do is squander it. Yeah. Well, before we started, I was telling you about uh, I attended a meeting on African development as a preparation for COP26 at the group of 30, the Central Bank alumni put forward. And they were very energized. And as I thought about Glasgow, I thought about that I had taken my staff to Glasgow in honor of a time where I was in crisis in my life. And my best friend took me up onto a 
mountain in Idaho. And he turned me on to a song by a Scottish band called The Water Boys. And the name of the song is The Hole of the Moon. And before this morning, and before recognizing the Water Boys, whose t-shirt I wear, I remember that my friend passed away recently, that his birthday is this week. But before all of that, was I was reading your book, I'm often informed by lyrics. That's like my Holy Spirit. What, what am I thinking and feeling? It comes down to me. And I, I sang, hummed the first verse of this song. This is three or four weeks ago. But it, I understand now why. It said, I, I pictured a rainbow. You held it in your hands. I had some flashes, but you saw the plan. I wandered out in the world for years while you just stayed in your room. I saw the crescent, but Michael, you see the whole of the moon. Oh, well, that's, that's, that's very kind of you. The way you bring the pattern, all of its elements, you're not playing in the subset, you're playing in the whole grid. You're seeing obstacles, you're seeing the possibilities, and you're seeing what's necessary to call upon us to do. This is a very valuable book. Thank you. And uh, it's very kind I'm of you. very grateful for your doing it, for your coming on, and for your allowing me to celebrate Rob K. Berry's, what would have been his 64th birthday, uh, with you there for a couple of moments. Well, let, let this be his legacy that, um, to help energize us at this critical uh, juncture. So yeah, he was a political activist. He was a culinary artist living in Durango, Colorado, and before that, Sun Valley, Idaho. But uh, he, he was, that's where I started getting interested in climate, was from my childhood friend. And, well, it's it's uh, clear his spirit lives on in you, my friend. Yes. So, yes. Well, and you're taking us to a higher level. So uh, thanks again. I hope uh, after some time passes, we might be able to get together, do another session. I'm sure my young scholars are going to thrive on the things you've shared with me today and when they read your book. Well, well thank you. I, I look forward to talking again. Um, me too. So, see, you, see you soon. Bye. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it. And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing